Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Curzon Podcast. It's Jake here, interrupting my own introduction to let you know that this episode was recorded the day before we found out we could actually get an interview with Louis Theroux, whose film My Scientology Movie we're talking about this week. So once you've listened to the main episode, do stay on as afterwards we have an interview with Louis Theroux followed by an interview with Claire Stewart, the director of the London Film Festival. So make sure you stick around for those. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we are talking about my Scientology movie, the new Louis Theroux film that is out this week. Uh, Joining me, Jake Cunningham, in the studio is Sam Howlett. Hello. And Helen Seymour. Hello. How are you all doing today, guys? Pretty good. Very well, thank you. Very, very happy now that I have, um, I've gone clear and ascended my human body. I, I mean, I've been asking you to do it for quite a while. I, Helen, have you ascended yet? I, sorry, yeah, it's on the list. Sorry, mate, okay. I'm a bit busy. I will do it by Christmas. Okay, great. I mean, are we allowed to tell her about Xenu yet? I don't know if she's ready. You haven't paid your two million dollars yet, have you? I'm frightened of this conversation. <laughs> it's not a cult. It's not a cult. Come on. You're one of us fellow Thetans, aren't you? Yeah. Stop it, guys. This is going on the internet. I'm scared. Yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Um, right, so, yeah, this week it is uh, all about Scientology, my Scientology movie, the Louis Theroux film directed by John Dower uh, that is out uh, with a live Q&A with Louis Theroux in Curzon Cinemas. That's a s- satellite transmission, so you can catch it in all the Curzon cinemas outside of London as well. And so I'd like to begin the show by asking you guys if you could get Louis Theroux to follow anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I'll take this one first. Um, I think that there's one name on everyone's lips at the moment, a man who is on one hand completely open in many ways too open but also very enigmatic and I think there's a lot we don't know about him and that's uh, Mr. Donald Trump potential president of the United States Donald Trump Um, I'd love to see Louis follow him around Um, we said earlier just see him doing his hair in the morning getting his suit ready when he puts it in the candy floss machine yeah (laughs) (laughs) well just things like because we've heard because the presidential debate happened a few days ago and there were things leading up to it that we were hearing that Donald Trump gets really bored practicing for his speeches and he can't stand still for very long. And I just love to see Louis through react to that and just watch that and have just him saying, Yeah, Louis, it's, it's really hard to stand still for a, a long time. Sorry. It's a good impression, Thank mate. You. Well done. Thanks. It's better if you could see my mouth because I'm doing the mouth. That's the. So he's the doing the mouth, the everyone. Oh, it's a lovely <laughs> mouth. It's quite lovely. I would like Louis to follow Lizo Mazumba. He seems really, really nice. There must be something. He must, everyone's got a secret. What is Lizzo's? Yes. He's got some skeletons in his closet, you think? He's got a secret. I mean, no one ascends from News Round to News 24 <laughs> that easily. 
Louis on Lizzo. I need to see it. Louis on Lizzo. Excellent. Also, I'd quite like um, if we're talking about topics, just in general. Or just Louis on. Yeah. Um, like her Channel 4, Louis on Channel 4. Because Channel 4 has had a big change over... Like, they used to do what I would call, like, really good documentaries. Mm. And now I feel like it's changed and it's kind of going a bit kind of, you know, headline-grabby, clickbait. Yeah, I mean, bake off. next time... Yeah. I mean, in a year's time, we could well be seeing a show where people just get their genitals out and review them. Exactly, with a screen that goes up. Um, guys, guys. That's an insane idea. Guys, isn't it? That would... I have breaking news. That show exists. No! Yeah, no. sorry. <sighs> Who do you want Louis to follow? I'm going to ask Lizzo. Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> it's going... Lizzo, the takeover. It that begins. That would be amazing if then Lizzo took over from Louis. Do you think Lizzo's a Scientologist? Perhaps. And that's why he's got really far in his career very quickly. <gasps> has, has Lizzo even got that far, really? <laughs> yes, he has. I mean, we're talking about I mean, him, so not, yeah. He's not an anchor just yet, is he? He's doing very well, thank you very much. You're the one that wanted to investigate him. <laughs> <laughs> I really like him. Oh, so when you really like someone, you just want to make sure you want to dig a, them out. I know they have a secret. It's like when you go on, when you match someone on Tinder and you go on Facebook to dig them out, to get all the all the info you Lee can. on Tinder would be good. Lizzo on Tinder, my dream. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. Bluey on Tinder is a good idea. Yeah, Louis, Louis through investigating the deep dark secrets of Tinder. Yeah. That could work, and that yeah. sounds like one he'd actually do. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to ask Louis to uh, go on me. I want Louis yeah, um, on me. Steady. No, I, I do. I really want him. Okay. Uh, and I want him to follow me around. I feel like uh, if you've seen I Heart Huckabee's David O. Russell's film, Jason Schwartzman is in a bit of a pit, and he uh, hires... Dustin Hoffman's existential existential detective to follow him around to figure out What's why wrong? he can't find meaning in his life. And Which I feel I like I haven't seen, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, you should check it out. It's There's also an episode of Thirty Rock where Jack Donaghy hires a private investigator to investigate himself just yeah. to see if he's got anything in his past that he hasn't figured out yet. Yeah, and that's what I think Louis Theroux could do for me, and he can analyse me, and then come the end of it, once he's wrapped my life up into a nice little arc, I can figure out what I need to do next. That would be really helpful, actually. He asks very good, poignant questions, and sometimes that's what I need in my life. Exactly. So if you've got a free Saturday, Louis. Yeah, I mean, just come round. I'm probably not doing much, really. I'd like to see your take on things. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think staying in bed 19 hours a day is a good way to spend your day? Is that a Louis Maybe. Theroux impression? No, that was just... Well, I, could, I couldn't do a Louis Theroux impression. What would that even be? Sam can sort of do it. I did it yesterday a bit, didn't I? Yeah. It, I Hello. Hello, what's your name? <laughs> come on, don't be silly. I mean, it's a bit children of the corn. <laughs> Maybe Louis Theroux is a bit children of the court. Louis on Louis, investigating himself. Yes. Just, just Louis Theroux in front of a mirror. <laughs> just that. Hello, what's your name? I'm Louis. What's I'm also name? Louis. I'm also Louis. What do you do? I make documentaries. So do I. <laughs> well, I would be riveting, Worst especially watch. for an hour. <laughs> um, so there, I think we've covered Louis Theroux's programming for the next four or five years. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Successfully. Yeah. You check. can thank us on Twitter. Yeah, or just send us a check. It's fine. Yeah. Like, just leave the balance open. We'll fill it in. It's all right, mate. Yeah. Just sign it. Okay, um, so we must move on. Louis Theroux's My Scientology movie actually uh, had its premiere last year at the London Film Festival. And this year's London Film Festival is now going ahead. It's uh, We're in two days into it now. Uh, we've had uh, a United Kingdom. Amara Santi's new film has opened it. And so we've taken this opportunity to actually talk to the festival director, Claire Stewart, about it, about running the festival, the programming, how things get selected, the Oscars, all kinds of bits. And so we're going to be playing that interview at the end of the show after we've uh, finished talking about Louis Theroux's new film. So once we wrap up, do stay on and listen to Jenna and Claire Stewart talking about this year's London Film Festival, which is on at the moment all across the city. So, back on with Louis. I'd just like to start by asking you guys, when you're going into a film like this, or any Louis Theroux film really, how much are you watching it for Louis Theroux and how much are you watching it for the subject that he's dealing with? 
I think that's a really good question. Um, so I really, really like the documentaries that Louis Theroux makes and I really like watching him and the way that he goes about the topics. So there is a pull for me in terms of wanting to see literally Louis on whatever topic it is. Um, but I, And I do watch, I think, most of his documentaries just to see even if I'm not that interested in the topic um, because I become interested because of the way that he's talking about it. Um, I kind of wasn't that bothered about Scientology, to be honest. It wasn't one of those things that I was really intrigued about. I kind of had a passing interest <laughs> in it, and I thought, that's it's kind of weird, isn't it? So but, Louis is this gateway drug into strange things. Yeah, but then there's certain things that he's made that I'm actually, I'm like, I really want to just find out more about that, that yeah. topic. But for this one, I don't know if I'd watch... But now I am really interested in Scientology, this so I don't it. know. So, yeah. uh, to give the film some context, a couple of years ago, uh, a chap called Alex Gibney made a film for HBO called Going Clear, um, which I suppose is more of a history of Scientology and bringing it up to now, talking about its origins with the science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard, and they're bringing it up all the way to now and looking at characters like Tom Cruise and John Travolta and after L. Ron Hubbard or LRH after he died the uh, new head David Miscavige and Going Clear is very much a step-by-step history up until now of Scientology and Louis Theroux's film is perhaps a more personal account of the church how it is now and the members of the church that have been exiled from it and the crimes of the church yeah I think that for me Scientology is something that is was really interesting 10 years ago when it was the big thing of Tom Cruise was there and he did all these weird stuff and it sort of things started to leak gradually about David Miscavige and when it was an, when I heard that there was going to be a Louis III documentary about it part of me thought I feel like that's something that's already happened just because Scientology was popular at a time but maybe isn't anymore but then you're right having watched the film it is suddenly really interesting some of the things he uncovers yeah, I think it's just it's because the church is so closed off. It felt like, oh, we know all about Scientology, really. It was like Tom Cruise is in it, he's crazy, everyone's a bit weird, it's just this cult. And it, mm. as you say, it kind of du- bubbled down a bit. Mm-hmm. And this and Gibney's film have really brought it back to the surface yeah. again. And I think that's actually important and that maybe this is going to be the type of thing that more films are going to be made on it as we start to uncover like it might be something because it is frightening when you hear about what goes on in there and it and the more people that start to leave and start to talk about their experiences the more you see how this is really hurting people so this might be something that in a couple of years time we look back on um and kind of try to pick piece together how we just kind of dismissed it and ignored it because actually I think it's really easy to just go oh look at those crazy people and Louis's documentary in particular really made me see how really insidious and frightening I I really found it frightening yeah yeah, yeah it is a it is a scary film there are moments in it that feel like a horror film absolutely yeah. the bit there so it's sort of it starts off you think he's just being paranoid I think there's a bit where an actress turns up in the hotel and he says oh maybe she's a mole and it's he's kind of dropped off then there's a bit where he's being filmed and maybe even followed uh, but it just gradually things heighten and you think no they aren't being paranoid they generally are being investigated by the Church of Scientology and that's when you're right it is like a horror film yeah I mean the, the whole film begins with a basically a screenshot of a tweet that Louis put out mm. saying I'm going to make a film about Scientology. Does anyone uh, with any knowledge want to get in touch? And the replies just to that are almost, like, almost comical in how yeah. like aggressive they yeah. are and fearful of it. And you just think, how can you be that scared of some crazy people that like hold tin cans uh, as therapy? And then it just goes on and on. And it, as you go deeper down the rabbit hole you realise how dangerous, really, it, it can be. And Marty, who's one of the people that... Well, he's kind of the one person that is talking to Louis yeah. and help him recreate these scenes, which we haven't actually discussed. Yeah, so... so if you ju- yeah. So um, Louis, it's d- he tries to get in contact with people in the church and he realises that's not going to work. 
So what he does is he decides to hire actors to recreate scenes that he's heard have happened um, to kind of understand and try to visualise what Scientology actually does. And that works to really good effect. Like, those were my favourite parts. I really enjoyed the whole thing, but they were probably my favourite parts. And the person that's informing him is a man called Marty. Marty Rathbun. That's it. And he left the Church of Scientology, and he was David Miscavige's, like, second-hand man, or yeah. maybe not quite Almost that. bodyguard. He, yeah, he said he was, like, the lead enforcer for the yeah. Church of Scientology, and he was responsible for a lot of the, like... Sort of spying on people and making sure people who left kept their mouths shut, and people who were in, who were in the church were obeying church yeah. law and things and not like ju- that. Not just intimidation, but physical violence. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, actually, something that came up in a really good Guardian review of my Scientology movie was that um, while going clear interviews people, it doesn't hold them to account for what they did there. Whereas this uh, Louis film does mm. do that with Marty. As Marty is finding what it's like to be on the other side, where people are investigating him and using the tactics, Louis goes to him and says, but you did this. And that's a really important yeah. and good moment. And like holding people to account for their actions and investigating, you, just because it was a weird old time, like that everyone's calling it, you did that. And I really respected Louis for taking that angle. Yeah, yeah. I there and I think I, I have a lot of respect for Louis in this documentary, perhaps more so than in other ones of his, because he is willing to leave bits of the film in where we really question whether his actions are morally correct as well. Right? There are bits where uh he's being followed uh and intimidated by the Scientologists that have been put on his tail, but then his actions rather than play it cool which a lot of the time he does there are moments where you can see these they've kind of got under his skin yeah and he does he he provokes them yeah he provokes them yeah and i think it's it's showing how easy it is for these scientologists to get to people and it really makes you understand how people get hooked into the church in the first place and how they get aggravated by it but also how they get hooked to stay in as well. Yeah, which is something that actually comes a lot from the going clear thing. And I would say that they work really well together, like just to understand it. When, after I watched Going Clear, I did that it kind of filled in some gaps that I didn't quite get from Louis. So uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if mm. you, if you know, it's good to watch them both because they're both good documentaries. Yeah, I, th- I felt like Louis, it came up a couple of times that. So the guys that are acting in his like recreations of these moments in Scientology history, there was sort of hinted that they don't know what they're getting into. Yeah. Like they don't know how poten- they could potentially be targeted by the church. And then Marty Raffman talks at one point that they even slightly threaten his his adopted son or something yeah. along those lines. And he said, Oh, we should tell them what they're in for and Louis says, Oh no, I wouldn't want to scare them. So you're right, Louis is not acting a hundred percent ethically here. He's not letting these people know what they're in for. And there's another bit where the guy who he's got playing David Miscavige goes with him to spy on the church. And you can tell that this guy suddenly realises that they're in danger a bit and he starts to get terrified. And he's, oh, are you scared? Don't worry, if you're scared. And it was just a weird, like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's getting in for. But I think to stand up for Louis a bit in terms of... I, yeah. I, I do know what you're saying with that. But I think maybe Louis was trying to kind of there's so much fear around it he was trying to just take away that fear and be like don't be scared of being scared like they're working on the like the whole kind of beast thing you know lord of the flies the beast it kind of psychology behind it and i did quite like those moments Mm. where especially when they went to the place with the guy who's playing david miscavige yeah and louis just quite he cares for him like he's there oh yeah and he's kind of like, oh, come on, that's just Tone 40 that we yeah. were learning about. And, like, it's quite a nice way of kind of being like, it's okay, they're just people at the end of the day. Which we have to remember, they are. They are people doing very bad things, it turns out. But yeah. they are just people. Even something about that, though, bringing the guy that's playing David Miscavige to the base, dressed up in a sim- similar clothing that David Miscavige was wearing, is quite provoking. And um, it's something he's done on purpose to try and gauge more of a reaction from them. I think that... So this is the thing with um, the, the the Louis Theroux sort of star persona. He wants this kind of 
in like, good TV or good film, and I think he does push them quite a bit in this film, more than I've seen him push people before. Yeah, I think what why he has to push like that and why we kind of see a Louis in this that we don't perhaps see in his previous work is that his whole career has been based on the idea of he's this kind of fish out of water guy that yeah. people want to take in like because he's he's charming he's friendly uh, he's english as well he's very polite mm. and so naturally people almost feel quite mothering towards him and they're willing to give up their information yeah, quite they're quite easily. often weird subcultures that think oh we haven't had our time in the limelight so this is a perfect opportunity for us to get our views across like, like that sort of i don't know like the um the neo-nazis or mm. the uh, ultra zionists these are people that don't have loads of media attention anymore so for them it's a great opportunity and they're very open whereas as you're probably about to say here's the opposite yeah yeah and he like in previously he would have been able to play the fool and that is what would have drawn more information from people because they they want to say oh don't you understand this is why we do it and he's like oh really go on Mm. (laughs) more information more information and here if he went to like a Scientologist um, tell me about Xenu no go on (laughs) no (laughs) it's just not going to happen that's Uh, a really good point actually yeah so he does it is a different Louis that we've seen yeah we've seen but still a very entertaining Louis and very watchable and someone that you do trust yeah Yeah. you trust every word he says and you think everything he does it it is genuine for me and I think perhaps for yourself as well it it maybe was not cinematic enough. Yeah, I did kind of question why it wasn't why it was a film, mm. a cinematic film, and not something that was on TV in two parts or something. Yeah, yeah. The thing that separates it from his other documentaries is this whole recreation part of it. Yeah, which, which I've never, I which we really haven't seen him enjoyed. done before. Yeah. I think I could have done with more of that. Yeah, yeah. I felt like that's what the film was about. The whole point of the film was that we can't get access to this these things that these people. So let's try and do it based on hearsay and based on the other accounts and just try and create something to get to the crux of what happened and why these things happened. And I think there's only like two or three scenes they actually recreate. Yeah, I can actually see them do. I feel like with this film, there might be a lot left on the cutting room floor. I think so. um, Because the recreation is such a clever idea and the production value on them is so high. They clearly spent a lot of money invested in these scenes and it would be really wonderful to have perhaps uh, if it was a two-part series on television we might have seen a episode on the recreations and then an episode on the people surrounding them yeah because Um, marty's a really interesting character um and it kind of tackles with is it a thing about marty or is it this Mm. recreation thing and they kind of have to balance each other out and i agree it'd be good to see some more recreations you're right i think two-parter i think with the way it is you've got two or three different films Mm. merged together yeah you've got a film about louis through going out and finding scientologists you've got a film about marty yeah about this guy who's kind of on the one hand he uh has very publicly um sort of spoken out against the church but then also has done a lot of the things that they did wrong and doesn't really admit to that often and doesn't really attain for those and then on the other hand you've got a film about trying to recreate these things so quite often i think it does get a bit jumbled up with which which film do you want to make and which film do you want us to see? Yeah, I get. I feel like maybe the the reconstructions thing. Everyone agreed this is a great idea, Louis. Yeah. Well done. This is a really brilliant idea for a film. Um, but everyone likes you when you go around with the camera, yeah. and that's what everyone knows you for. So if you don't mind, can you go out mm. for a couple of weeks and just do some some of that stuff you normally do? And we'll give you the money for the reconstructions. <laughs> There are two really good moments I'm not going to spoil, but I just want to mention, because they're so good, of that Louis Theroux going around with his camera stuff. One of them is when he's in the car with Marty, and Marty is getting frustrated, and he says, come on, just ask me something that you really want to know. And the moment from that is such yeah. a, like, Louis, you didn't! Oh! Like, <laughs> Damn, son! <yeah. laughs> so good (laughs) and then right so watch out like look for that guys when you're watching the film and also right at the end again an interaction with Marty where Marty is telling him to F off and Louis' reaction to that I am going to steal and use at any time in my life when someone tells me to F off because it's amazing it's so good (laughs) well on effing off should we F off this uh, review 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we will do a little bit of spoiler chat in a moment, uh, but there's not much to really go into. Um, but why should people go and watch this film? Because it's a good... I mean, we we brushed on a little bit that sometimes it's a bit... Uh, you, you're going in to watch this for Louis Theroux rather than the subject. But I think that's fair enough because he's such a great host and he's because he's so sort of passive in a way um we've yeah we said something maybe in this film he's a bit less passive than normal but he's still a great uh sort of character to introduce you to these weird worlds and yeah amazing combination of subject and host and i found it really interesting even though i thought i knew everything i could about scientology helen yeah pretty much agree with that it's a very very good film and i think it's quite an important film to watch in terms of shedding light on this very dark um, organisation that maybe we've all forgotten about. Excellent. Right. So, uh, do go and check out Louis Theroux's uh, My Scientology movie this weekend. Uh, If you've already seen it and want to stick around for a few minutes of spoiler chat, then now is the time. That's your spoiler warning kicking off now. Okay, so spoiler stuff uh, in the film. It's not too heavy, as we said, but there are moments that um, I'd like to talk about, like the hole, for instance, mm. which, Ooh, yeah. uh, which is a gruelling experience. This is almost the science, Scientology's unofficial prison camp. Yeah. Which sounds absolutely awful. And it, the scary thing is it's a voluntary camp. Yeah. Um, and so, You can go any time. Yeah. This is but exa- can you? Yeah. And so... Um, members of the Sea Org, which is kind of like the uh, torch bearers of the church, yeah. like the flag wavers. They have fancy uniforms and things. Yeah, I don't and want to compare s- them to the Nazis too much, but they are the equivalent of the SS, I guess, yeah. in that they way. They sign in a billion year contract. Yeah. Yes. A billion years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Helen, don't you see, in a billion years, <laughs> they're going to be a spirit roaming free around the universe. So why wouldn't you sign that? Sorry, I'll get yeah. my pen out. Yeah. As David Miscavige says at the funeral for LRH, his the body carrying his vessel has diminished, but his work continues, doesn't it, really? This is insane. It is mental. Every, every now and then. Stop it, guys, they're listening. <laughs> I just wanted to pause the film, just to be like, can we just talk about how insane this is, that people genuinely believe this? It's Helen's different. face is so worried. She's so scared that they're going to be listening in. I hope they are. Yeah. Who's that outside? <laughs> it's a squirrel. It's David Miscavige. <laughs> He's terrifying as well because just the the or, the sort of this weird aura of David Miscavige, this unseen malevolent evil leader. Yeah, I would just like to point Very out. I think, I think Ben Mendelsohn would play a wonderful David Miscavige. Yeah, that would be casting. <laughs> yeah, I'd say wonderful, not the <laughs> optimal word. But if ever things got less serious with Scientology and we yeah. had a David Miscavige film. I well, when they're auditioning Wilson. actors for it and this one guy just lost his mind just like nearly be- beating up Louis Theroux in the audition Marty was like oh yeah that's David that's David Miscavige right yeah. there I was like, who is this guy yeah. um, but back, back to the hole um, and so this the, the members of the Sea Org that get put in the hole if you ask them to leave they're going to say no like, like you, the, the doors open mm. you can go if you want but they're so brainwashed that they're completely content to stay in there because they think they deserve it Mm. they think i have to go through this because i've i'm clearly wrong in the head somehow and like it's so close to what (laughs) like it's so frightening and in the going clear thing someone says the best prisoner is one that traps himself and that's just it like these people they're doing menial work in for like 30 hours straight or something in this like uh, basically on a slave wage yeah and they're sleeping on the floor and they're being shouted at and they're they're being frightened every day mm-hmm. and they don't know what's going on and, and they, they choose to stay there yeah and this leads to I would say the most successful reconstruction yes. of Louis Theroux's yeah. film yeah. is when the chap that he's hired to play David Miscavige enters the replica of the hole that they've built and just loses it at everyone in there and Marty Rathman who would have been in this situation maybe tens hundreds of times just says that is exactly it yeah. this is how it would have been and if you're watching that you think how can anyone who is the leader of a church so basically the Pope of this organisation going keeping his 
clergy, prisoner, and then beating them up. And they're happy about it. There is a kind of strange look on Marty's face while it's going on, though, that I couldn't quite work out. It was like a strange kind of smile. Yes. Like, there's something about Marty that you kind of get from it. There's like a sub-story. And Mm. I think that's very interesting as well. Yes. Did you both fully believe everything Marty said? No. No. No, because Marty, it is said at the start that Marty actually believed in some of the the teachings. The spiritual aspects of Scientology. And there's a moment where he said, I left because, like, to prove to David Miscavige, like, how bad things have got. And he was like, because he needs me. And there's a conversation Mm. there that it started to reveal his actual thinkings and his actual reasons for leaving yeah. which weren't like a lot of people like oh my god what am I doing it was like right I'm going to leave because then he'll need me back yeah. which so is very do different you, is there he a, wants to be back do you think is, there's something there there's something that's not hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. Is there a part of you that thinks maybe he has exaggerated some of this then? David Miscovich. Like how truthful Trinky's being and trying to arrange these reenactments. Yeah, and perhaps that is the issue with focusing the film on one person, really. Yeah, like your he evidence... does interview a lot, but the whole reenactment process is based on things Marty has told him. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it does. Yeah, it's not what the film's about. I guess the film is trying to say this is what happens. But then a part of me did think, but Marty referenced such a questionable character and even Louis Theroux knows he's a questionable character and as you said he questions him a lot so it's a weird sometimes it's a weird choice to kind of blindly believe everything he says Mm. well I don't think he is blindly believing not blindly but because he's he's doing the questioning and he is like I said earlier holding him to account he never lets it go and I think it's right that Louis never lets it go that okay you're annoyed that these people are following you don't you remember what you did like I'm glad he does that Mm. Mm. definitely um, and any other kind of final act revelations that you'd like to bring up? It was a public road. It was yes. a public road. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the ongoing debate on the film about where they can film, <laughs> whether this is a road owned by the Scientology or if it's a public road. And yeah. just a, a really satisfying title card at the end. Yeah. I, loved, I loved the cameraman that was like, I've just been hired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's great. <laughs> I hope he has just been hired. And he's like... What the hell have I got myself yeah. in for? Like, oh, this is the worst job I've ever had. Yeah, it reminded me of a um, bit in Iron Man Three. Oh, I thought about the same scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, guys. So a bit in, in Iron Man Three where Iron Man breaks into a building and sort of knocks out all the honchos, and then there's one guy just standing there who just looks at him and drops his gun and goes like, um, "I'm sorry, I don't even like working here. These guys are so weird." Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, if that Scientology camera guy just keeps getting hired and he just keeps getting followed. <laughs> Great, another to... job. Oh, it's a Scientologist again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, guys, Maybe I really don't want to work with you anymore. When Louis met the Scientology <laughs> cameraman, that's what we need. Well, he's probably in the hole right now. Yes, yeah, that's true. And he's loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Praise the um, So let's wrap up there on my Scientology movie. I think we all agree it's a really excellent film. Yeah. Um, it, it does... I think it does earn its cinema release, uh, if perhaps not completely selling it as a cinema experience over a televisual one, but uh, definitely worth paying the ticket price for, I would say. 100%, yeah. 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 And use it as a gateway to get into uh, 
Alex Gibney's going clear as well, if you haven't seen that. Yes. Because um, they do work side by side for each other. You watch Louis Theroux first, then um, Gibney can give you the backstory and vice versa. You can get the history of it and Louis Theroux really brings it into the present. Hey, it's Jake again, interrupting myself. Just in case you forgot, uh, there was an interview with Louis Theroux recorded after this episode was recorded and which we didn't know we were going to get. But we're going to play that for you now. Anyway, here's me and Louis Theroux. So we are delighted to be joined on the Curzon Film Podcast by Louis Theroux, whose new film, My Scientology Movie, is out now. So, uh, Louis, I'd just like to ask you about Scientology. Um, I mean, 10 to 15 years ago, it was this weird thing that we knew Tom Cruise did. We didn't have much information as the public. Why are we getting this outpouring of information now? Uh, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick you up on that. I think we, if you'd been paying, uh, and I'm not trying to criticize you uh, in any way, but for, you know, for, for me, it's been on my radar for, for years. And, and, and I think if you were, for those who are curious about um, secretive and, and bizarre uh, American religions, then you would have, you would, you would probably have known about L. Ron Hubbard He's been, you know, there's been biographies, other books about him. There's been lots of wet stuff on the web, and and documentaries that are available on on YouTube. Um, so th- there's been an, and and alleg- you know, kind of bizarre allegations about what you know, this, the fact that they've got celebrity adherence, um, rumors that uh, you know that they that Scientology denies that the celebrities are inside because they fear being blackmailed if they leave, having divulged personal secrets. Um, rumors or allegations of high pressure sales tactics and uh, other kind of cult-like behaviors. Now, what happened um, that slightly changed the map of Scientology a bit was that in 2003 or four, thereabouts, there was an, a little bit of an exodus I mean, this is not unprecedented within Scientology. There's been adherents kind of coming and going. There's been people leaving and denouncing it all the way back to the 50s and deciding, you know what, Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, is a con man. This is what they've alleged, um, that it's a cynical uh, attempt to make money from gullible believers. So, so in a sense, that, that had happened before, but there was quite a large movement of high power, of high-level high Scientology personnel who left in around 2004 up through 2007, 2008, and they went public um, in a series of interviews alleging um, that David Miscavige was an out-of-control and violent um, martinet, if you like. And do you think the... So if these exoduses have happening, been happening for 60 years, uh, do you think maybe the way that we can communicate through the internet now is perhaps a reason why more people are getting interested in it, that we have more access to the information? Uh, you know, it's been said that um, that the doom of Scientology was foretold at the moment when the internet was um, brought into existence because you can't have a religion that relies on its, for its existence on divulging secrets, it sells, in a sense, secrets the secrets of everlasting life, in effect, that that can't, that, that's not, that's no longer viable when um, you've got the free flow of leaked information on the web. Now, Scientology does still exist, notwithstanding that the internet exists. So I don't know whether that's, um, I don't know whether that's true or not. It seems to me that um, Scientology has become very, very good. You know, one of the interesting things about it is. It was founded in 1950, that's when Dianetics was published, the same year as McDonald's was first founded. And there are interesting parallels between them. They, they, ha- they both have this aggressive business model that relies on a kind of franchise system. And Scientology seems to be very good at extracting money from its parishioners. So it may be that it's going to be around for a while. Okay. And when you're actually making the documentary yourself, often with your work on sects or cults or religion, people are quite happy to share their information mm. um, for you, the inundated. Whereas you're in the reverse situation here, 
Uh, how did you have to change your approach to actually try and get the information where normally perhaps people would be willing to give it to you? Yeah, it was a big stumbling block for me to begin with because as you say, I, I'm used to making documentaries where we have access and people are inviting you in and they're saying this is what we believe, um, this is what we want to um, tell you about. And here there was no access or at least no conventional access. And I sort of thought, well, how are we going to see a human side to Scientology, which was my aim, you know, to sort of see a more rounded human side than the conventional sort of tabloid version, if they're not willing to speak to me. And then it was only when, um, as a production, we hit on the idea of using ex-Scientologists to reenact scenes on sound stages using young actors. And, and, then, and then interrogating those scenes and making them the leaping off point for discussing why people get into Scientology. Once we had that approach, I thought, well, maybe that's, that can work. And, and, and the important thing, I suppose, is the film is, in a way, as much about ex-Scientologists as it is about Scientologists, that we, that we, we sort of examine both worldviews. Yeah, I mean, the, there's almost three films going on within it, with mm. the reconstructions, this profile of Marty Rathbun, mm. and yourself going around and meeting the others as well. Yeah. Was it tough striking a balance between those? Um, and there's a fourth level, by the way, because they're making a film about me, it turns mm. out. So you've got this, them turning up and suddenly filming their Scientology movie, which is a movie about me trying to make my one. I, you know, I was working with a very talented team. Uh, Simon Chin, the producer, uh, who's won two Oscars for Man on Wire and Searching for Sugar Man. John Dower, the director, who's also um, made a, some, some great documentaries, feature length. There was a little bit of creative, you know, I think, I think creative um, collaboration is often about kind of push and pull. And I, I had wanted to do, I, I was always lobbying for more reenactments and saying like, let's reenact this scene and let's reenact this practice. And, and John, I probably to his credit, like, was saying like, hang on, let's slow down. Um, maybe we only need one or two reenactments and you got the casting sessions. If I'm, so if I'm totally honest, if it had been solely my film, it probably would never have got made. But uh, and it might have been a sprawling mess, but I think I would have said, let's do one or two more reconstructions. I just enjoyed that whole process. Yeah, well, it, it, the reenactment brought out for me the most interesting moment for Marty in yeah. the film, which is after the whole reenactment, the look on his face, he's almost got a sense of pride. Yes, he's it. really pleased with bringing it to life. You can see he's like a proud dad looking at his his kind of kids win the game or something. Yeah, but almost a satisfaction from reliving it as well. And Maybe. I, yeah. I, I mean, I take it, some people have seen that it's almost sinister and that he's enjoying it in a um, dubious sort of way. I, I didn't get that. What I got was that he's a creative guy who's put a lot of work into doing the castings and the various steps of the creative process and that it's finally coming to life in the way that he wanted it to and it's so close to what he hoped it would be. So I sort of see a creative satisfaction. I should also say that I, had, I hadn't, you know, because we, you know, there's three of us sort of, three main personnel involved in making it, me, Simon and John. And Simon's thing was like, we, you know, we want to make sure that there's enough engagement with Scientology on camera sort of, you know, maybe you should go down and get another scene down at the base of you just getting a sense of what the base looks like and uh, maybe they'll come out and handle you and that would be interesting. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want it to be, because there's, there's quite a few Scientology films that are about um, them coming out and, you know, those kind of explosive encounters mm -hmm. with Scientologists calling the police and all the rest of it. John Sweeney, perhaps most famously, the BBC Panorama. Um, so I, I didn't, I, I had a few misgivings about that, but it turned out that they, those are very rich scenes, and actually the audience really responds to those scenes. You know, yeah. I was so I was pushing the reenactments. Simon was Simon liked the um, the kind of us 
um, at loggerheads stuff. And that really brings it to, I wanted to ask you about the written by credit, which mm. I which is see on your work, which I always find really interesting because I wanted to ask how much you know of your idea or the story when you go into it and how much you find it in the edit as well. Yeah. You know, I feel documentary credits are, um, well, it's probably all credits are a bit inexact, aren't they? So I get on this one presented by and co-written by, and the co-written is with um, John Dower, the director. I, you know, obviously I wrote all the commentary, so all the stuff where um, I am speaking over the images. Beyond that though, I think the important thing is that because you are slightly discovering it in the edit, but you're also planning scenes um, that you hope will yield interesting material, but they don't always. It, it was a very collaborative process between myself, John and Simon, and myself and John in particular. And um, I think we sort of made it up as we went along. I think we just knew that the first thing we needed to shoot would be the, the casting of David Miscavige, the head of Scientology that we might cast Tom Cruise later on. But it was only once we did the Miscavige casting that I had the sense, okay, this could work. This actually is not a sort of jeu d'esprit or some sort of self-indulgence. It's actually a, um, a revealing piece of uh, footage about what Scientology is. I think, um, you know, there was a couple of major scenes that ended up being left out. Um, and a couple and one or two scenes that we ended up shooting to sort of fill in a gap. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It was a long edit. It was like a, um, I don't know, maybe six or seven months, which is really a very long edit. How much footage were you cutting down from? I couldn't tell you in hours. I would guess that it was a ratio of around 40 to 1. I mean, that, that's a normal ratio for me. It might have been less, 30 to 1. But um, it was very much... And we had a sense early on that it would end in a reenactment of the whole, what's alleged as having been this ultimate abuse, area of ultimate abuse within Scientology, which they deny. Uh, but b between those things, the, the steps of the journey weren't clear and they, we sort of found them in the edit. Excellent. Well, on that delightful note, I think we'll have to wrap okay, up. Okay, well, Louis, thank you th very much, Jake. Thanks a lot, Louis. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank so, you. Uh, make sure you stay tuned in for the um, London Film Festival interview with the festival director, Claire Stewart, who spoke to our very own Jenna Hobbs and who's talking about this year's programming. And if you get the chance, do go up to the festival and catch some stuff. There will, there will be films at the festival that we will be talking about down the line uh, on this very podcast, uh, including Amarasanti's United Kingdom, Damien Chazelle's La La Land, which we're very excited about, uh, Manchester by the Sea. Arrival. There's Arrival, Denis Villeneuve's film, Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins. That's the combination. Um, Dream Team. Yeah. Uh, there's so many films up there to get excited about, and we look forward to bringing them to you on the podcast. Um, so stay tuned for that. And until next time... Oh, wait, before I go, um, Going Clear, the Alex Gibney film, it's on Curzon Home Cinema, so make sure you check that out um, so you can do a nice double bill there. And thanks again to CSR for letting us use their studio as always. Uh, so we will see you later. That's bye from me. That's bye from me. Goodbye. Today we are delighted to be joined by Claire Stewart, director of the BFI London Film Festival. Hi, Claire. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Great Jenna. to be here. Great. Thanks so much for speaking to us today. We know that it must be such a busy time for you with the festival nearly a week away on the 5th of October. How are you feeling about it? Very excited. I sort of am twitching to get there. Really. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and so one, I was wondering if I could ask you first off how your first experience with the London Film Festival have kind of changed and what's, what it's like now. Well, I think my first London Film Festival back in 2012, um, I was also new to the city and new to the UK. So uh, everything felt um, surprising and a little bit, uh, I was in less known territory. Mm -hmm. um, and now I feel sort of deeply embedded in the culture of this wonderful city, very connected to our festival audiences, um, and of course very excited to be um, bringing in a lot of uh, fantastic films for people to discover. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So um, we were wondering, when you look at this year's film festival, what are you hoping that people will say to describe it? 
Well, I think it's always very important for us to continue to um, give more scale and depth to the festival. So I don't necessarily mean by that making it bigger, but I mm -hmm. mean layering on more and more things for people to experience. Mm -hmm. And this year, of course, is our 60th anniversary yeah, year. Yeah, how exciting. So we're sort of, you know, very thrilled to be looking at the great heritage of the festival, mm -hmm. reflecting on what it means for a festival uh, that started in 1957 with 15 films, um, <laughs> opening with the now legendary uh, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, to get to uh, a point where it resonates so widely with audiences across the UK and where we're screening, you know, more than 240 films. Still, by the way, I think with something very genuine about that original festival at the heart of what mm -hmm. we do, which is wanting to bring more diverse and specialised cinema to more audiences in the UK. Amazing. And so how early on are you looking at booking things into the programme? Well, our um, programming cycle really uh, starts off at the beginning of the calendar year mm -hmm. when we attend uh, the Sundance Film Festival, kind of, is the, is the beginning of that cycle. And um, myself and uh, our programs team, so Trisha Tuttle, who's our deputy head of festivals, um, Michael Blythe, Kate uh, Taylor and Law Bonville, um, across the course of the year we're all attending various different festivals, Berlin, Cannes, Hot mm -hmm. Dog, etc uh, we're also doing you know bespoke trips to uh, different regions to um, look at films that are coming out of particular areas in the world um, and we of course have a massive network of program advisors who are also experts in their uh, territories who are constantly feeding into that process mm -hmm. plus uh, we you know we have an open call for submissions and that means uh, you know we receive over 2,000 films um, wow. uh, features and shorts um, to uh, consider for the festival as well so it's a very big kind of process in terms of uh, both that uh, what I consider to be kind of active curatorial research mm -hmm. but also the relationships that we build with our sales agents and and uh, distribution and studio partners along the way so part of what makes it uh, possible is not only you know um, seeing the films but also a lot of meetings with all of those um, uh, all of those rep film representatives to track what films are going to be delivering mm -hmm. in our window so now the, the programme of the festival, I would say, is now, you know, 50-50 films that are kind of uh, international or European premieres that are breaking at this moment, mm -hmm. and also 50% uh, films that are, you know, our favourites from across the course of the year. Amazing. And so, um, with racial diversity being a really hot topic at the moment, with the Oscars so white backlash at the start of this year, I was just wondering if you could tell us more about the BFI Black Star programme and its role in and out of the festival. Absolutely. I mean, for us, uh, you know, this is in some ways a continuation from our focus last year on the Year of the Strong Woman, yeah. We're opening the festival with Suffragette and doing a symposium with the Gina Davis Institute and Women in Film and TV on uh, representation of women and girls in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we found that that was the first time where we'd really gone into the festival, not only, you know, bringing all these terrific films to Londoners and audiences from around the UK, but also... Um, establishing a talking point and, and looking at the festival as being a place where we can really create debate and discussion and inform the future of our industry. Um, so this year when our colleagues who, by the way, have been planning the uh, Black Star uh, program for quite some time, mm. like well before the Oscars So White um, campaign, um, you know, planning a program that really celebrates the achievement of black actors on screen, um, that, uh, you know, the festival happening immediately prior to that program. So that program will play out across the UK, uh, October through mm -hmm. until the end of December. Um, that, uh, uh, gave us the opportunity to think about how we might amplify some of those themes in the context of this festival, particularly given it's a really strong year. There are many films that chime, uh, with this, uh, topic in our program, um, uh, you know, not least of which is our opening night film in United Kingdom, yeah. uh, directed by Amo Asante. So we were very excited to discover that for 
filmmakers like Emma, um, David Oyelowo, who of course stars in the United Kingdom, and mm-hmm. also uh, Queen of Catway, and who will give the headline at our uh, Black Star Symposium. Uh, Noel Clark, whose um, Brotherhood is obviously uh, in release at the moment, um, and uh, the legendary Julie Dash, whose uh, film Daughters of the Dust um, is playing in the festival uh, restoration, um, a new restoration from the UCLA. Um, Julie being the first uh, black woman director to have a film um, distributed in either the US or the UK. Um, and uh, Barry Jenkins, whose film Moonlight plays in official competition, um, and a, a real breakout film that we're very proud to be presenting the European premiere of. Mm-hmm. These filmmakers are all participating in the symposium, all very passionate about wanting to uh, be active um, about creating change in the industry. And, you know, for us, it was really important not only to... Um, create a platform for that discussion but also to take action ourselves so our um uh our network project which is our hothouse lab where five uh uk um producers five writers five directors all of whom are have either got a low budget um film under their belt or Mm -hmm. they're about to make their first feature um have a sort of intensive four-day workshop experience with some of the international filmmakers that are coming in for the festival Mm -hmm. this year that cohort is um has been uh selected um from uh, filmmakers who identify as black asian or minority ethnic so you, you know we are also quite literally saying we want to be active in creating those opportunities uh, for uh, filmmakers of more diverse background. Um, so, you, you, you know, to me, it's it's exciting and very important to be able to do all of that, uh, but also to celebrate quite genuinely the films uh, in the festival, everything from the United Kingdom and uh, Queen of Catway mm-hmm. through to um, Ava DuVernay's extraordinary documentary, 13th, mm-hmm. um, Birth of a Nation, Nate Parker's uh, remarkable Sundance uh, award winner, um, and... Uh, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, which I've mentioned, um, you, you know, it's a and, and Spike Lee's uh, Chirac. It's a really strong year for powerful black cinema. Amazing, and yeah, the program is really diverse, and it's incredibly diverse with its great mixture of like really small foreign language films to like huge big Hollywood films that you're promoting here as well. We we're just wondering um, what your favourite picks of each end of the spectrum were this year. Well, of course, it's illegal for a festival director to have favourites. <laughs> um, but let me say that I'm a huge admirer of the acquisitions team at Curzon. Um, <laughs> and then we do have um, some really great uh, titles that we're working on with Curzon that I'm so mm-hmm. excited about. Handmaiden, Park Chan-wook, one of my favourite d- directors, and so thrilled that he'll be doing a screen talk in the festival as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Asghar for new film The Salesman which of course won Best Actor and Best Screenplay at um, the Cannes Film Festival this year I think in terms of our headline galas this year it's incredibly exciting actually about the films that you that we're thinking will be vying for award season mm. attention because there's such a great diversity within that in terms of styles of films and approach to subject matter so you know I'm as excited by Damien Chazelle's you know wonderful uh, musical La La Land as mm-hmm. I am by Denis Villeneuve's um, uh, completely invigorating sci-fi arrival as I am by Tom Ford's um, kind of dark, noirish, overheated melodrama in um, uh, Nocturnal Animals. So for me, uh, what we're seeing this year with some of those bigger uh, films is much more of a sense of directorial play with form Mm -hmm. and that to me is really exciting. And how do you feel about the festival being placed kind of at the beginning of the Oscar buzz? Do you you like that about the festival and the kind of chat around it or would you rather that was... 
not a big thing. I, I think it's a really important, it's one of the really important roles that the festival plays mm -hmm. is positioning these films and, you know, London is very well placed to do that given that we have such a high population both of Academy voters and BAFTA voters. Uh -huh. So I see that as being an important uh, industrial role that the festival uh -huh. plays as well as bringing those films to audiences. I mean, I'm excited by films across the spectrum and, of course, the discovery role um, uh, it remains one of the great and most energizing aspects about what we do. Yeah. I am thrilled when I'm seeing you know first feature filmmakers whose work perhaps we've shown their short films, perhaps we know nothing about them, mm -hmm. um, but to be uh, you know shining a light on first time feature filmmakers is as exciting to me as it is to be you, you know doing the red carpet glitz and glamour for um, yeah. the Hollywood films absolutely and so there's films that uh, announce for London that will then get played at festivals like Cannes and Toronto before and some of them review really well like Tony Erdman or some of them less likely like Snowden how significantly does this affect the reaction to the programme for you? Well, for me, I think audiences always have the opportunity to make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, uh, I'm, I'm interested because Snowden, for example, has reviewed very well out of its Toronto screenings. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you have an important uh, role to play in ensuring that you're bringing what you think uh, audiences want to see as well as what you uphold as being um, excellent cinema. So to me, um, uh, I feel like part of the joy and a big part of the joy is connecting films and filmmakers with audiences and giving audiences the chance to make up their own minds about mm -hmm. films. That's amazing. Well, Claire, thank you so much for talking to us today and we hope you have a great start at the festival. We can't wait for it. I can't either. Woohoo! <laughs>